Welcome, everybody, to the Grueling Truth Sports Network. I am Mike Goodpaster, your host for Remember When. We were going to call this Get Off My Lawn, but I figured some people may not understand what that means. Uh, I want to introduce the two old farts with me. We have legendary boxing author John Raspani. Make sure you look him up on Amazon. Three great boxing books. What is that? A few more rounds. Blood on my notebook and... Infinite Warfare, the behind wow. the story of the Gaudy Ward fights. But John, I know that you're like me and you still kind of live in the 70s. So we figure we might as well do a show. Sure. Why not? It was a great time. Great time to be a sports fan. And of course, we have, as always, a man who won a national championship in 1981 with the Indiana Hoosiers. And he's a member of the Indiana Basketball Hall of Fame, Steve Risley. How you doing, Steve? Doing great. Ingrid, I live in the 70s, too. I mean, the Bee Gees are still my favorite favorite band of all time. And when you make love to your wife, you still listen to bread. Uh, oh, yes, I best of bread. Best of bread. Best makeup album of all time. See, we, were, we were talking like four or five years ago, and he told me that. I so I tried to play it for my wife, you. and she's like, what is this stuff? Because she's younger. She doesn't remember the 70s. All right, guys, I, I want to remind you real quick, you can hit the like, subscribe, bell notification button so you get all the grueling con truth content on YouTube. Also, check out BetMGM, the best place for betting on sports, and follow us at Grueling Truth. Today, we're going to on Remember When, remember baseball in the 1970s, which to me was the best time for baseball. I mean... I don't think you can top it, John, when you look back at that decade from this week in baseball to legitimate three dynasties during the decade and all the other teams that didn't even win it. There was only four teams that won the World Series during the decade, but there was a lot of depth of great baseball teams back then. Yeah, and being, living out here in Northern California, the Oakland Athletics, who won three in a row, if you guys remember that, were just dominant. And... Nobody game, went to the games. The attendance was usually like 10,000 people. So when I went as a teenager, when we cut school, uh, we got great seats. Don't right worry, behind. John. Your teachers are all dead. That's, they're all dead. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so, uh, you know, we, we, got, we, got, we, we got there early and we watched batting practice. We used to watch Reggie being a, should I say it? Being a jerk like usual, but still watching, you know, oon and on as he's blasting them all out on the right field and everything. And Sal Bando and Gene Tennis, my paisan, you know, my two paisans and Dickie Green and Mike Epstein. Hey, Catfish Hunter came and talked to us. I mean, it was a, it was a fabulous time then. And it was different, Mike, because you just mentioned the game of the week. That was the thing you look forward to all week back in those days when you were yeah, a kid. Yeah, because people don't realize this. If you're under the age of 40, you don't realize that there was a point. Like, I'm a Reds fan. I live 25 minutes from Cincinnati. And we would get 44 games a year that were telecast. And then we would get two surprise home games during the season plus opening day. So we would only see like a third of the games. So back then, I think not as many channels, not as much to watch, Steve, and I know growing up as a Reds fan near Cincinnati, the only time you got to see American League teams was either the baseball game in a week or Monday Night Baseball because I remember being excited in 1979. I'm 11 years old because I'm going to watch the Yankees play the Angels and Nolan Ryan's pitching. Yeah, I, to me, you know, I mean, growing up, I was obviously always a basketball fan. 
But I remember the 70s is just the most transformative time for baseball. Um, and, and I think at that point in time, what I remember was baseball really being the most dominant professional sport there was of the three. They were bigger than the NFL at the time because the merger was just happening. The Super Bowl was big, but really the NFL hadn't blossomed to what it was. The NBA was transforming out of the Willis Reed um New York Knicks era, you know, that, that type of thing. And the Lakers going into a new era, but baseball was like, like you said, three big dynasties and, in, in, in what the A's, the Yankees and the Reds um, pretty well dominated everything. And what, what I just started when we started prepping for this show, I started going through the list of players that played in the seventies and, Good golly, half the Hall of Fame should be made up of players that played in the 70s. Um, you know, you, you had, we'll talk about the uniforms, I'm sure, the transition. The money was the big thing. And, Mike, I know you yeah. only – And, and let's go ahead and go okay. right to that because, to me, I but, think that but, was – Let ahead. me just say one thing before you go there. I vehemently remember Saturday's Game of the Week with Joe Garagiola and Tony Kubek every Saturday. And, I mean, I religiously watched whoever was playing. But it was it was a lot the Reds, a lot the A's, and a lot the Yankees playing because they wanted to showcase their best teams. But that, that game of the week with Joe Garagiola and Tony Kubek, um, you know, for religiously for almost the entire 70s, was just a, a, a cathedral that you watched every Saturday. Yeah, and when you look back at it, I think the big thing here is baseball's 400%. I think it was hyperinflation of wages during the 1970s. And when you look at that, that was basically union leader Marvin Miller, who, you know, he first had the urge, then the legal strength to assert himself against financially scrupulous owners who had stood content, you know, behind that reserve clause, John, that basically kept players enslaved to them you couldn't leave there's not a, i mean if you look back one of the reasons the yankees through their time were so good was because they would have the same group you always had yogi Berra catching you always had mickey mantle you always had joe dimaggio you didn't have to worry about somebody outbidding you for him and kind of in 1975 the rules of the game changed overnight and those baseball lords went from masters went from slave masters to just hustlers and then they were forced to pitch it and you see like 1976 after the reds win the world series their best pitcher don gallant the yankees go by him and really the free agency is what killed that oakland athletics team because charles finley refused to bid on anyone and by the time you get to 1977 that a's team is completely decimated so really it was huge because you had players that started off 1970 making thirty or forty thousand dollars on average, and by the time you get to the end of the 70s, you get players like Nolan Ryan making a million dollars a year. Yeah, I, I, let me just John address this. I, I I look at it like this: was the A's were the seedling team of, of the baseball of the 70s. I mean, you look at all the players: uh, Reggie, Vida, Catfish. Uh, I mean, you can go down the list of players that came off that A's team, Gene Tennis, um, and, and they kind of seeded the Yankees. 
The Reds stayed true to themselves like the Yankees did in the early eras, Mike. You know, that they kept that lineup. That's not true, though. Because if you look at the Reds, 1970 and 72 was a completely different team well, than by the time you get to 1975 because of trade. Red machine. Well, I mean, the Cincinnati Reds, for the entire decade, averaged 95 wins a season. I think it was 1970 to 76. They averaged like 96 or 97 wins a season. And the big thing with them was Bob Housen's ability to make deals to trade away guys like Lee May and Bobby Tolan, which people would think would be nuts. But when you turn it into being Joe Morgan and Cesar Geronimo and George Foster, Foster. that's what really turned everything around for the Reds. But the free agency thing, I think in the long run, John, was a good thing. Yeah, it was. It, it was it's just such a different time. That younger people are going to watch this show and go, what? what are they? We don't even know what they're talking about. Because it was just, it, it was like it was back. It was the same thing. It was like you said, Mike, they had you by the you-know-whats and you really couldn't do anything. And and it, it was great in one sense that your team could stay intact. That was good. But for the player, it wasn't so good. I mean, I absolutely hate how there doesn't seem to be any loyalty between uh, baseball teams and baseball players now. Look at my Cubs. I mean, they dismantled everybody. They Chris Bryan, Anthony Rizzo, Javier Baez. They're all gone just because they had the gall to want more money. And now they're all back in the rebuilding. And it's like, why can't we be good every year like some other teams? You know, we don't get rid of all our players. The Dodgers don't dump their players like that. So it's 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 good. There's some things good about it, especially for the players, even though at times I feel like it's way, way too it's outrageous. These guys make yeah. 20 million dollars a year. It just blows my mind but but i understand from their point of view that they wanted the freedom to play where they wanted to and, and i get that so it's always been kind of a mixed bag for me yeah and i think the, the main problem you have now is teams like the reds and the pirates and the royals they'll be good for a couple years here and there but they have to do it with their farm system it's like the reds right now hottest team in baseball but five years from now those guys are going to be scattered on the yankees the dodgers I mean, they're going to be in Houston playing for the Astros. That's a huge problem, too. But the way it was run up until 1975 was a complete joke. Now, when we talk about dynasties, I mean, the 1970s, was there ever any other decade in modern sports that had that many dynasties? It was like that in football also. If you look at the Steelers, the Raiders, the Cowboys, (coughs) even the Vikings, even though they didn't win any Super Bowls, the Dolphins, you, you had five or six there. But in baseball... You had the Orioles, who started off the decade winning the World Series. They finished the decade losing in Game 7 to Pittsburgh. And then you've got the Oakland A's three straight years, 72, 73, 74, the Reds, 75, 76, the Yankees, 77, and 78. And the competition was not weak for those teams. And when we start off and you look, I think a team that really gets overlooked when talking about the dynasties are the Baltimore Orioles. Because that was a team that had four 20-game winners, I think, what, 1970 or 71 with McNally, Palmer, all those guys. They beat the big machine in 1970 in five games. 71, they lose in seven games to the Pirates. I think they blew a three games to one lead, just like they did in 79. But when you look at that Orioles team, John, that was a tremendous baseball team that I think gets overshadowed by those Reds, A's, and even the Yankees teams in the 70s. 
Yeah, I'm just trying to remember. I remember Paul Blair, what a great center fielder he was, and Boo Powell. You know, Brooks Robinson, Frank Robinson. Brooks Robinson was the best third baseman when I was a kid. I mean, he 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 was amazing. Talk about a vacuum human vacuum cleaner. Uh, the pitching staff, though, Mike, and then they had Earl Weaver as their manager. You know, the little crazy man that reminded me of John McGraw, a little Napoleon type. Uh, the pitching, though, Mike Cuellar, I mentioned him. He was he was incredible. But you know what? When I think of that series, that team is the against the Pirates because I was a big fan of Roberto Clemente, and that was his last hurrah before, unfortunately, he tragically died. And he had a great series against Baltimore and was really instrumental in winning. But I think when you win like that, probably happened a little bit with your Reds in the seventies. You start to take everything for granted. Probably happening with their Dodgers. You know, they win pretty much every year. This year, they're kind of floundering, and you're like. What's going on with them? So, you know, you get kind of spoiled, something that hasn't ever happened to me, Steve, being a Cubs fan. Uh, but the, the Orioles really were a, a tremendous team, and they just had the bad luck or misfortune or whatever you want to call it to be running into these incredible teams that were just so good. And it was – I never got tired of the fact that it was mostly the same teams. I, I just – they were just all so good, and they earned it. They were that good. Yeah. I mean, when you got Palmer winning 20, Cuellar 24, McNally 24, that was the 70 team that won 108 games. And when you look at that, I mean, you had Dick Hall, who was a relief pitcher, 10 and 5, Mo Drabowski, who would probably be considered their closer, maybe. I don't know. But he had an ERA of like 3.7. He was a good pitcher. And. The next team I would go to would be that Pirates team because they won it in 71-79. I don't know. My question to you, Steve, is would you consider them a dynasty? Because you had they win the World Series in 71. They lost in the NLCS in 1974 in four games to the Dodgers. And then the Phillies got in there for a little while, and then they went it in 79. So I, to me, it's not a dynasty. But that was an all-time great team with guys like Clemente at the start – Willie Stargell through the whole thing. I think Al Oliver is one of the most underrated hitters of all time. And then guys like the Candyman, Jim K or John Candelaria, they had great pitching also. Who was their pitcher that was uh pitched the game on Coke allegedly? Doc Doc Ellis. Doc Ellis allegedly pitched the entire game high on Coke. I mean, yeah. I, I think Mike, I, I think that team of the Pirates was probably, uh, of all the teams in the 70s, the greatest team of characters. Which I don't know. The, the A's were up there, too. Well, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll get to the A's. Yeah, yeah the A's were the, for the yardstick by which everybody was measured. Like I said, they, they, they became the seedling of the 70s. But then that's that, that, that Pirates team, to me, and again, uh, I remember that team based on all the great players on that team. And associated with that franchise, um, we are we are family. Remember that was their thing. yeah yeah we that are, was their thing. Yeah, seventy nine sister sledge. Yeah yeah exactly. Now drive around campus in Bloomington all summer long in my Monte Carlo with T tops. Um, I don't know if it was bought and paid for or not. Um, but uh, you didn't play at UCLA. We are family. You know, a guy named Sam. <laughs> Uh, yeah, but 1971, check out these numbers. Willie Stargell had an on-base percentage of 400, but he hit 48 home runs with 125 RBIs. I mean, that's not a bad year. No, nope. no. Nope. I mean, Roberto Clemente only, you know, where are his numbers? He only hit 13 home runs with 86 RBIs. He's getting old. So, yeah, he was getting old. Yeah, and then you go to the team you talked about, John, the 72 A's, which – 
the thing that's really impressive about the 72 A's that people forget, Reggie Jackson got hurt mm-hmm. in their five-game win over Detroit in the ALCS and didn't even play in that World Series where they played the Reds. In that World Series, I think five or six out of the seven games were decided by one run. The only blowout was game six where the Reds blew them out, I think, at Riverfront Stadium at game six. And in game seven, Pete Rose hits the deep blast down 3-2 bottom in, or in the ninth inning. I think Joe Rudy makes the catch up against the wall to win that series. Then in 73, you had the Mets. And the Mets, John, were a team that were weird because they ended up like 82 and 80 that year. They play a Reds team that wins like 97 or 98 games, but they had to, they had Kuzman, Matlack, and Seaver as the pitchers. They upset the Reds and then actually took the A's seven games. They had Nolan Ryan too, didn't they? Not in no, 73. Not Nolan Ryan was with the A's. Yeah, yeah, Ryan was on the team in 69 when they oh, won the they World Series. He was a relief pitcher. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead, John. No, no, it was uh, it was I remember those series really well because they were such good World Series. There were there there wasn't anything uh, 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 they were nail biters. And and it was funny. I got to give you a little background about the A's. You know, the, the, the Giants are have always been the number one team here in Northern California. So the A's were like the forgotten black sheep of the family with all their problems and all the Charlie O with all his he had that mule walking out in front of him. You know, his team his kids were like what's the thing's going to take a dump any second. You know, it was it was just such a weird thing. But as a team, though, they totally gelled, which was which amazing considering Sal Bando and Reggie hated each other. And, and I think they all hated each other from everything I've seen, read. Well, Catfish Hunter, everybody loved him. But uh, Reggie, pretty much everybody hated him. You're right. But they all respected him. And, and But somehow they all put it together as a team. Uh, Dick Green, too. I think they all liked him pretty much. He's a nice guy. But uh, uh, they were fighting. They would get into locker room fights, and we just laugh about it in school. You know, it's like, God, okay, it's been, hey, it's been two weeks. Haven't they got into a fight yet? What's going on? Well, they're losing. Then they get into a fight, and they start winning. So it was, it was just a, um, it was just a crazy time. And and it, I think I remember being a little surprised that they they kept winning the World Series. I thought they were good, but I, I, they almost seemed like you're talking about dynasties, and you're talking about um, uh, meant to be. That's how it seemed with them. They seemed to get as my dad would say, all the breaks. Yeah. And, uh, John, was, it, was Dick Williams her manager? I was yeah. sitting here thinking that, and I was thinking it probably was Dick Williams. Yeah. I mean, in my, I look at Dick Williams as kind of a precursor to Tony La Russa. Just, just a guy who could take that kind of talent and gel it and, 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 and get the egos aside and win ball games. And Okay. Uh, all right. I got to tell my favorite Dick Williams story. Okay. Do you want to hear it? Do you do you know what it would be, John? No, I I might remember when you start saying, yeah. All right, Dick Williams, who managed the Oakland A's to two World Series titles. Two. All right, he was only there for two out of three. When he was seventy years old in two thousand in Henderson, Nevada, he was arrested for walking naked and masturbating outside his Fort Myers hotel room. Oh well. I'm reading the article here because I remember there was something, but a woman who worked next door to the hotel called the deputies, and when they knocked on William's door, he was wearing pajamas. So at a hearing the following day, he pleaded no contest. Well, you plead no contest to that, you probably did it. But well, it didn't help so, you. First name was Dick, right? So there was a little evidence. Well, him. I mean, he was just <laughs> maybe he had laryngitis and he was trying to tell everybody his name, so he was walking around holding it. Okay, but yeah, uh, just then we I get try to clean up my my personality. 
Look what I, did. I didn't cuss. I didn't say anything bad. Just so talk about names. That's all, Steve. You know. So. But yeah, yeah, like Biff Pokeroba. That was. <laughs> I, yeah, yeah, you know. I remember. I remember that A's team. The the, the motorcycle handlebars. Uh, oh, Raleigh fingers. They all did yeah. it. You know. They well, actually, I read a book one time where they said that Charlie Finley actually paid all the players to do that. He paid Raleigh fingers to wear the heart her handlebar, he and, and you had a team player. like. Yeah, we go to the Reds, 75-76. They were a team where you weren't allowed to have long hair or facial hair yeah. at that point. Total I don't think opposite. they started allowing that. Yeah, they were yeah. total opposites. And, and I think those. I think the 75-76 Reds are the greatest team that ever lived. I think that they would have beaten the 72 A's because there were upgrades, So especially the pitching staff. You didn't have McEnany or Eastwick. And I think people forget how good the pitching staff was. Sparky Anderson was the first guy that really used his relievers a lot. But you had Don Gollett, who I think was 14 and 2 in 75. You had Pedro Bourbon. Yeah, the bullpen, you had Pedro Bourbon, you had Clay Carroll, you had Wall. Yeah, you had Raleigh Eastwick, you had Will McEnany, the starting pitchers, Freddie Norman, Don Gollett, Jack Billingham. And let's face it, the greatest catcher that ever lived, hands down to me, is Johnny Bench. You got Tony Perez, who's a Hall of Famer at first base. Forget about him all the time, Tony Perez. That's right. See, he shouldn't be forgotten about because if they don't trade him for freaking Woody Fryman at the end of 76 because they think Dan Drees is the answer in the future and they wanted to save a little bit of money, the Reds may have continued to win. At second base, I think Joe Morgan and Rogers Hornsby are the two greatest second basemen that ever lived. They got Morgan from Houston, didn't they? Yeah, they got Morgan yeah, from Houston in a trade. They got Foster from the Giants in a trade. But Foster was a dude that was hitting 52 home runs in 1977. King Griffey Jr. was a guy who just barely, by percentage points, lost the batting title to Bill Madlock, I think, in back-to-back years. Madlock, yeah. He had Cesar Geronimo, one of the great defensive players of all. Dave Concepcion, he perfected that short hop throw off the AstroTurf to get guys out. Yeah, whatever. Fuck people. <laughs> but I mean, greatest sitter in the game, and that's your comment on Pete Rose. I can't believe that anybody would think he was the greatest hitter in the game. He had a 301 lifetime He had average. the most hits. Yeah, the most hits. That's the leading hit getter. Let me rephrase. Yeah, he had the most hits because he also had a couple thousand at bats more than everybody else. Because this my issue with Pete Rose is this. To me, the legit the record's not legit because if you look at his stats in 85, 86, you know, or 80, his last three years, I think his batting average was like 216. So, I mean, he hung on to get the record. He was a very good baseball player. But let's face it, they moved him position to position because he was not really standout defensively anywhere. Mike, but I think Mike, the move Sparky Anderson made he was to put him at third base on baseball. was huge. We don't know if he was distracted then. Chances are he probably was. But by the mid-80s, we know for sure he was. But And I think the 1975 World Series. NBA, I compare it to the 1984 Lakers-Celtics finals. That 75 World Series, Game 7 drew like 80 or 90 million great viewers, great. which is like double any other viewers. In Game 1, you had Luis Tion, you know, with that motion. The call. I mean, at Fenway Park, beats the Reds 6-0. Five of the next six games are decided by one run. You had game six, maybe the greatest Bernie game Carbo. between Bernie that. Carbo. Yeah. And then you had game seven. The Reds, people forget, were down <laughs> three nothing in Alpha the sixth Fisk. inning. Yeah. yeah, the Reds were down three nothing in the sixth inning of game seven. 
and Tony Perez hits, you know, the Ethos pitch <laughs> out of the it. ballpark to make it three to two. And of course, Joe Morgan wins the game with a single in the, I believe it was the top of the ninth. And then Carl Yastrzemski makes the last yeah. out. And then, of course, in 76, they sweep the Yankees. That wasn't even much of a match. But then you get the things that happened after that. Trading Tony Perez was absolutely stupid. And then the other thing, 1977, the Reds made a trade with the A's for Vita Blue. The Bowie Coon went in and nixed, said they couldn't do it because it would give the Reds too much of an advantage. The thing about that is the Reds, you know, a little while later in that season, trade for Tom Seaver. I mean, they could have been rolling with Tom Seaver and Vita Blue as their top two starters. So, but I also think there's a case to be made that Bowie Coon is one of the worst baseball commissioners ever, but there's a lot of competition for that. Our Giamatti's pretty close. He didn't live long enough to be good or bad, did he? Yeah, he probably not. Job killed him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. His, but, his son's a good actor, though. He's Paul. He's a good actor. Oh, I didn't even know that was his dad. That's his dad. All right. And then we get the Yankees and what the hell? Billy Martin, who <laughs> may have been one of the greatest managers of all time. I mean, people forget that dude everywhere he went, he turned the Billy team Ball. around. Billy Ball. And I mean, you get the 77 World Series. You talked about Reggie Jackson. <laughs> so when you talk about Reggie Jackson, I mean, the dude in game six of the World Series at Yankee Stadium against the Dodgers on that biggest stage with 50 million viewers. Three pitches. Three pitches. Three home runs. No doubters. Yeah. I mean, when people talk about things they'll never see again, I mean, somebody doing that in a clinching World Series game, I would find that hard to believe. But also, I think it was really good for baseball because the Yankees and Dodgers were in the World Series against each other, and those are the two biggest markets. So when we look at those teams – I mean, I think the Yankees team was the lesser of those four teams we just talked about, but that was a great team. I mean, 1978, Ron Guidry was about as good as any pitcher's ever three. been for one year. 25 and three that year, I think, wasn't he? Mike, 25 and three. Something like that. Yeah. I mean, he was insane that year. He was untouchable. I think he had a game where he struck out 18 in a game. And the Yankees, Dodgers, I mean, I also remember 78 was a game. Three or four, Bob Welch against Reggie Jackson with the game on the line, and Welch strikes him out. John's got a memory too, but something. So I think the dynasties were cool, but I think the cooler thing to look back are the best teams that didn't win a World Series. That, which to me, the teams that stand out to me are the Phillies and the Royals and the Dodgers, because that Phillies team. You look at them. Seventy six, they lose to the Reds in the LCS. Then 77-78, they lose to the Dodgers in the LCS. And that's a team with starting pitcher Steve Carlton. You've got Mike Schmidt, the greatest third baseman of all time, Steve. That was a great baseball team, those those Phillies of the 70s. And then, of course, they would finally win the World Series in 1980. Steve. Oh, oh. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I... Dramatic pause. No, I, I didn't. I realized you were going to me. Um, yeah, I, I think that, that – but I, I really think that when you take away, you get past the, the Reds or the A's, the Reds, and then the Yankees, I, I think those were great teams. But And the Orioles. Uh, Don't forget the Orioles. And the, the Orioles. Orioles to start the decade. I, I get, in my mind, which is feeble compared to your YouTube geniuses, and I mean that with all sincerity, not in a 
And when John, you laughed. I didn't. I, yeah, I right. started looking at it, not team <laughs> dynasties, but all of the great players of the 70s that we haven't even mentioned yet. But we're going to talk about the teams, and you can mention the players. Well, I, I, I think that it's hard for me to look at, like, the Phillies and teams like that because they didn't win. And to me, the 70s were, were, were the team of, the, of the, the three and a half big dynasties. And I think team-wise, that dominated it intentionally. And beyond that, the other teams, they all had their day. I think the Phillies came on strong in the early 80s, didn't they? Well, now, the Phillies were strong from the mid-70s until the mid-80s. They won the World Series in 1980. They started winning World Series in the 80s. When the Reds broke up the Yeah, but I mean, you still got to look at this. Because if you look at the 77 Phillies, I mean, that's a team that's got Larry Boa, Mike Schmidt, Greg Luzinski, um, Gary Maddox, Jay Johnstone, I think was on that oh, team, yeah. Bake yeah. McBride. Bob Boone was the catcher, who was a great catcher, especially defensively. And I, I think when you look at teams like the Phillies and the Royals, the Royals are another big one to me, John, because – you had 76, the ALCS, they lose in five games on a Chris Chambliss walk-off. 77, they blow a, I think it was like a three or four to two lead in the ninth inning at home in Kansas City, and they lose again to the Yankees. And then in 78, they get beaten four games by the Yankees. And of course, like the Phillies, though, they ended up in the World Series in 1982 because they ended up beating you know the Yankees in 1980. But that Royals team was a team that, if you get a break here or there, they could have been in back-to-back World Series at 76 and 77, John. That Amos Otis in center field? That's yeah. A, yeah. Yeah, they, they were. See, they, they're a little reminiscent to me, and it's funny how it all happened was the Dodgers, right? The Dodgers won it finally in 81. But in Yeah, all those teams. Yeah, just like that. Years later, did win it. Yeah, in yeah, The dynasties were over. After the dynasties broke apart, then the other teams, like you mentioned, Mike, started winning. Yeah, but I think this, though, if those teams aren't there and these other ones aren't, these teams could have been. Because when you look sure. at the rosters on these teams, exactly. I mean, the 77 Royals, from what I remember, Daryl Porter was the catcher. The border, Amos Otis. Let's see. George Brett was at third. Johnny Mayberry. Potter, 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 wasn't Freddie Potek? Freddie Potek is a shortstop. John yeah. Mayberry first. Frank White was a great second baseman. Um, Amos Otis, Al Cowens. Dan Cuisenberry. Uh, Hal McGray. Uh, no, Dan Cuisenberry would thing. have been in a team in the 80s. Yeah. And Isn't if you look at – Yeah, I mean, if you look, the bench was good. I mean, they had Cookie Rojas on there. Cookie team. Rojas. Is there a much names. better name than Cookie <laughs> Rojas? And then the pitchers. You had Dennis Leonard, I think, won 20 games that year. Um, Jim Colbert, I think, won 18. Paul Splitorf won 16. And I think the closer that year was Doug Bird. Because Quisenberry, I think, got there later in the 70s or early 80s. But, I mean, that was a team that had outstanding pitching. They had everything. It's just they didn't have Reggie Jackson. And Reggie Jackson was the difference in 76. And in 77, I mean, the great moment there is I forget who slid into third in game five and took out George Brett. And then they start swinging at each other. You know, the bench is clear. Everybody's fighting. They break it up. Nobody gets kicked out of the game. They just continue to play because it's game five of the LCS or ALCS. Why are you going to kick somebody out in a moment that big? 
Yeah, it's true. Yeah. And see, and you, you're making me think about with all the talent, the Dodgers, Steve. I mean, they had what? Ron Say at third. They had Bill Russell at short. They had Davey Lopes at second. And they had Steve Garvey first, right? I mean, and they had Reggie Smith in right field. Who they have in center? I can't remember who they had in center and left, but they had a, they had Joe Ferguson as their catcher. They they had a, a – It wasn't Joe Ferguson. Wasn't it Steve Yeager? He was later. I think it was Ferguson. I thought, I thought Ferguson was 74. Was Garvey there in 81? Gar, oh, Garvey was there in 81, yeah. That yeah was, Garvey, Garvey was, was there in 77 and 78. Year, yeah. Yeah. yeah, Garvey was there. They, I mean, had, they had all that talent. They had Don Sutton. You know, what a great pitcher he was. So, yeah, it was, it was Yeager, Garvey, Lopes – Russell, say Baker. Dusty Baker, left field, right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Bill North was the center fielder. 78, Bill North was the center fielder. Who am I missing? Yeah, oh, Reggie Smith. Smith. Remember, he had the fro. Reggie and Smith was in right, I think. Out. He was in right field. Reggie Smith was in right field. Yeah, Reggie Smith was right field. Steve Dusty Howe in 81 that, that, well, that, that did well in the World Series. But not in the seventies, yeah, but you, Steve Howe. Yeah. If you look at the pitching, I mean, you had Tommy John, Don Sutton, Don Sutton. Rick Roden, Bob Welch, who we just talked yeah. about. I think the closer on that team was Terry Forrester. At least I think it's seventy-eight. It was. Yeah. And you had the old knuckleballer, Charlie Huff. Charlie Huff. Well, yeah, Reggie. Reggie got him in <laughs> the series. But uh, yeah, that that team. I when I lived in L.A., I got to see some of those. They, they were just a really, really good team, and it was almost a sense disappointing that they didn't win the. World Series, but they, the Yankees, you know, 77, not until 81 did they finally win it. But, uh, and then that was it. Garvey was gone and that was the end. So. Yeah. And everything, everything always ends. That's what sucks about life. <laughs> I just brought everything down, didn't I? I didn't mean to. It's just, yeah. It's killed right. everything. All right. Greatest baseball memories in the 70s. Steve, what would be your top couple? Okay, the first real baseball game I remember watching in earnest was early 70s. And the first, for me personally, the first one was Johnny Bench, the first player I ever saw hit a home run in baseball. And Johnny Bench was my favorite player of all of the, you know. Me too. You know, he was my favorite baseball player. Hey, did you hear what Pete Rose said the other day? No. Oh, boy. He said that he said that Johnny Bench should be nicer to him because if it wasn't for Pete Rose, Johnny wouldn't be in the Hall of Fame. Oh, brother! Yeah, because he said that he was always on base, so Johnny can knock him out. <laughs> always about Pete. Always about Pete. It's always about. Pete. Well, anyway, yes. that, that's one of them, and I, I would say, bar none, by far for me, it was Reggie's performance at, at Yankee Stadium: three pitches, three home runs. I mean, the, just the mag, the electricity. In baseball, that how about this, Steve? The other thing, if from what I remember, is this all three were off a different pitcher, too, because I think it was like Bert Hooten, Ilya Sosa, all three, and Charlie pitchers, Huff. Yeah. yeah, yeah, three different pitchers on the first pitch. But I yeah, mean, I don't think we'll ever see that again. Jacks, I mean, I, I don't think there's another Yankee that ever gave you a one game performance, um, of, of electricity. Like that, and I'm the only sure. thing that could compare would probably be Don Larson's perfect game, yeah. And that was in 1956, that's even before my time, yeah. So yeah, <laughs> but, but I, I'm not even sure that brought the electricity because that took an entire nine inning game. So did Reggie's, but for Reggie to do it on three swings and, and with the flair that only Reggie could do, you know, and 
that is to me the most dynamic moment of baseball I've probably ever seen was, was, but then I'm a, I'm a flashy kind of guy anyway. I know, you Steve. Know. That's why you got Here I am, now. 64 years old, and still wearing my hair like Barry Gibb. Yeah, that <laughs> is kind of sad, but it's kind of cool <laughs> at the same time. So, it's a little bit of both, you uh, know. Yeah. But I, I, I can do tell have you a this. disco ball in my showers. So. My, my first personal recollection of going to a baseball game in the 1970s would have been, I think it was early 1977. My mom, my dad, my sister, we go to the Reds-Cubs game, John. And the thing I remember about it is, number one is, you know, the big plastic stadiums they had. But as an eight-year-old boy, would you walk into that stadium and see that? And, I mean, I'd listen to Marty and Joe call the Reds or, you know, at one point it was Al Michaels. But I remember watching these guys and actually walk in and see Johnny Bench in front of me on the field to see George Foster. The thing that stuck out to me was, I think it was the sixth inning of that game, George Foster hit a red seat home run. Red seat was the top, you know, mezzanine part. And when he hit it, it sounded like a gun went off. And my my love affair with baseball was basically going to those games with my dad. He was a construction worker, owned his own construction business. And Aurora Lumber down here had tickets right beyond home plate. And like two or three times a year, he would surprise me by coming home and say, hey, we got tickets to the Reds. I remember going to watch the Reds play the Braves. Gaylord Perry pitched. John DeCount Montefusco with the San Francisco Giants. Randy Jones, the year, I mean, the year, I think it was the rookie of the year in 78, right around there, watching him pitch. But I always remember we would leave like in the seventh inning, because my dad always wanted to beat the traffic. So much like my and dad. I mean, the Reds, <laughs> the Reds back then, always 40,000 people oh, there every Mike, game. So Mike, you just went to WLW and listened to Joe Nuxhall and Okay, so this is my horrific the moment. The old left-hander rounding third. Who didn't, who didn't listen to WLW? My, my horrific moment in the 70s is the Reds are playing the Phillies. Okay, I'm there with my mom, my sister, my dad, and we're sitting like first row right behind the Phillies dugout. Number one, Mike Schmidt was flirting with my sister. I mean, he would wink at her and stuff. <laughs> but the Reds were down like seven to two or six to nothing, and it's like the seventh inning. And my dad says, ah, hell, this is over, so we're going to leave. We leave. We've got Marty and Joe on the radio, 700 WLW. I can't remember if it was 76 or 77. But the Reds, of course, found a rally, you know, and Johnny Bench hits like a three run home run in the ninth to tie the game. The game ends up going on for another two hours and the Reds win it in like 16 innings. I reminded my dad of that until the day he died, because I would really like to see me into that game instead of, you know, I used to stand outside of our brick house and act like I was Don Gullett and throw the ball off the thing and catch the ball. And I listened to the entire game like that. But, but I think this, I think there is one moment that was bigger than Reggie's three home runs. And that would be Han, or Hank Aaron hitting number 714 at Riverfront Stadium. And then 715 in Atlanta at Fulton County Stadium. Because, I mean, yeah, the thing about that is if you guys have ever seen anything on that, which is all the racist hate mail, yeah. inward this, inward that, you're going to die tonight. And nobody thought that was a record that was even possibly to be broken. It is a record that still stands today if you don't do steroids. Yeah. 
So, I mean, Hank Aaron, and if you also look at him, I mean, he's like top three in almost everything. He had 3,700 hits. So that's why to call Pete Rose a better hitter than Hank Aaron, Hank Aaron had like 400 less hits, 1,500 less at-bats, and he hit 500 more home runs, maybe 600 more home runs. So I would think that, and of course, 1975 World Series, when the Reds win the World Series, that always stands out to me. John, what are your big ones? I know there's none from the Cubs probably in the Oh, no. I think you guys were always in first, though, in the middle of May, and everybody get excited. And then you'd have like a 15-game losing streak. Well, that was 69 when the Black Cat cursed us against the Mets. He ran across the field. That was it. We lost like eight in a row after that. Uh, you, know, you don't think it was just a lack of players? Because I think the sad thing is this. Baseball is the one thing. Like, I'm a Reds fan. Joey Votto, I think, is an all-time great player. And unless they do something this year, he's probably never even going to get to a World Series. And Ernie Banks is one of the all-time greatest players ever. Never even sniffed it. And he was my favorite player growing up. And that's that's the story. We went to a lot of Cubs games in the 60s. And it was just like you, Mike. It was with my dad all the time. And he, we would go to Chicago, and then we would always go to a game. But a lot of times it was with my whole family from Chicago. Well, this one time was like 1970. Ernie was getting kind of old. He was about 39 here. But we went to a game, and, and the Cubs actually shockingly usually won when we went, which was pretty amazing. They were like – I think I went to 18 games, and they won like 15 or 16. Uh, they were playing uh, They were playing the Dodgers. And Fergie Jenkins – So maybe it was that you guys didn't go to every game. Yeah, well, that's true. It helped. But Fergie Jenkins was on the mound, and that day was a slugfest for the Cubs. All the guys that uh, uh, that people remember well, you know, uh, uh, Ron Santo and, and Billy Williams and, believe it or not, Ernie Banks all hit home runs. And, you know, I'm 12 years old, and I'm in awe, like you're talking about, Mike. I mean, I love Wrigley Field because of the history. You know, Lou Gehrig hit a home run there as a, in high school. Babe Ruth, the alleged whatever he did, waving at center field and blasting out of there. Dizzy Dean pitched there. I mean, it was amazing history to actually walk around in that, that stadium, which I did was incredible. And then see the Cubs, they won like 18 to six. They, they even Don Kessinger hit a home run and that was a rarity. So that that's a fabulous memory. And then the, the best one for me, uh, for the Cubs was when Ernie Banks hit his 500th home run. And I I wasn't there, but I actually heard it on the radio which was Mike and I have discussed uh, is my was the favorite my favorite thing to do when I was younger was listen to baseball games on the radio. It's just fabulous. Me too, especially on the West Coast, John, because yeah. you could hide underneath your pillows and listen to the game, so yeah. your parents didn't know you weren't going to bed, even though they knew it because they knew the Reds were on. Especially the old Reds Dodgers games. Yeah, exactly. And I'll tell you, uh, Steve, my dad was just like Mike's. We would always have to leave in the bottom of the seventh. We went to basketball games. We'd always have to leave with like seven minutes to go in the fourth quarter. <laughs> I'm like, Dad, it's 82 to 82. Come on, we got to beat the traffic. So, hey, 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 John, John, I'm probably as old as your dad. I used to, I still leave about the seventh inning of a game or third quarter of an NFL game. I'm like, let's beat the traffic. We can listen to the damn thing on satellite radio. Well, I got my revenge on my dad. It sounds mean, but he was about 78 and we were at a Cubs game together. And I, I looked at him, it was three to three in the seventh inning. And I looked at him and said, there is no way. We are leaving. We're going to stay here. I said, you dragged me out of all those games when I was a kid. And he went, all right. So we stayed. <laughs> we stayed. Hey, my, mine was this. Mine was 1988 AFC championship game. The Bengals are beating the Bills 21 to 10. David Fulcher intercepts the pass. There's five minutes left. And my dad looks at me and says, let's get out of here. <laughs> we, ain't, we ain't leaving, Dad. <laughs> And he says, what do you mean? I said, 
we may never see the Bengals go to a Super Bowl ever again. I never knew how true that statement almost was, by the way. But he stuck it out, and we stayed, and we watched the Bengals. We celebrated them go to the Super Bowl and everything. But, I mean, when you look back at the 70s, and I started off by saying maybe this should be a get-off-my-lawn show. But I, I think that that's true. I think anybody. I think if you're 20 right now, 30 years from now, you're going to look back at now and say, oh, it's nothing like it was in 2020. But, I mean, the thing is this, and it sucks to be older, but I plan on living to at least 120, I figured. But So I've got another 70 years. But make it great thing younger already, is, Steve. The great thing <laughs> is everything that we have gotten to see. And how it did seem more special then because not everybody was making $40 million a year. You know, Johnny Bench and Nolan Ryan might have been making a million dollars a year. But, and it's just the proliferation and there's so much to watch. If you're a fan of a team, you can watch every game. And I think this, I think that baseball fans that are like in their 50s, 60s, 70s, have a better understanding of the game from listening to guys like Jack Brickhouse, Harry Carey, Marty Brenneman. I mean, because you had to pay attention when you listened to the game Vince to know Gally. what was going on. Vinny, Vince yeah. Gally. You know, you can't look at your cell phone no. while you're listening to a game because I tried it the other day. I'm listening to the Reds game. I just listened to it in the ninth inning and I'm on my phone. Next thing you know, I mean, the Reds were up by three. It was against the Astros and it's extra innings. And I'm like, how the hell did that happen? Because you have to pay attention and you learn the intricacies and the nuances of the game when you're eight, nine, 10, 11 years old. That's missing today. It's basically everything is a highlight show. I, I want to ask you this, Steve, you know, and we'll make this our last topic. The pitch clock. Are you for the pitch clock or against the pitch clock? I'm against it. Uh, and I've thought about this because I, I watch the Dodgers religiously now um, because we get every game on spectrum. We have a, Spectrum Sportsnet out here in L.A. So hey, there's something called Stream East where you can stream every game. Is H and yeah, we don't have to, because I couldn't get the Reds and I found it the other day. Get, I know, but you don't have to pay for it that way. Damn. Well, it's part of it's just part of our basic cable package, so we'd have to pay for it if we wanted cable. Period. But we get every single game, and you know, it used to be you could meander through a game. You could like, uh, okay, I want to watch this game. I just want to watch the Dodgers bat. Or, oh, man, Kershaw's on the mound. I want to watch him pitch, and I may flip over and kick the news in or something like that and flip back and forth. But with this shot clock, man, games are over in two hours. Pardon? <laughs> Tell you you're a basketball game, a basketball guy. You always call it a shot clock. Yeah, yeah. Well, shot clock, pitch clock. You know what I'm at. I, I think the Oakland A's pitchers actually pitch like that, though. Yeah, yeah. But so I – all in all, I'd be against the pitch clock. But I want before I, I let two things. One is we didn't talk about this it, it just quickly. And this is one thing that strikes me the most. If you had never gotten to do it, do it. I have had the privilege of walking in, like you said, into the stadium. I've walked into Fenway Park, which is just the first thing you see is the green wall. And, and it's right there in front of you. I took the the L and the E train to Yankee Stadium. 
come out of the tunnel and there's Yankee Stadium. You go in and then there's the Memorial Gardens out there. You see that. And yeah. I've been to um, Wrigley, um, you, just the old brick. And to go in these cathedrals um, is it, just, just a privilege and a treat. These places are meccas, these mm-hmm. baseball stadiums, especially Fenway, which I think is the oldest park in existence. Isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It, it's the I think oldest. it's older than Wrigley. Yeah, I believe it yeah, is. It's older than Ben Wrigley. And then actually Chavez Ravine is third. Yeah, 1960, um, I think, right? Yeah, it's, it's the oldest oldest park, third oldest park in the majors right now is Chavez Ravine. That's I've not been cool. to a Dodgers game yet. Oh, uh, really? It's can't afford it. You got to get a third mortgage on the house. <laughs> you know, Dodger dogs, fifteen dollars. Oh, yeah, it's ridiculous. Uh, but to walk in these parks is is just phenomenal when you get to do that. And those are the only. Well, I've been to White Sox Stadium. The new one. Comiskey. Oh, the new one don't count. The new one don't count. I've not been to the old one, no. I think John Raspani should meet me in Chicago when we go to the Cubs. I, I, I got out of I got out of White Sox Stadium not getting shot, which is on the <laughs> south side of Chicago. So I felt lucky about that. Actually, if you get out of Chicago without getting shot. And then the last thing before we get back to the, the, the shot clock. Um <laughs> the pitch clock, clock basketball guy. <laughs> I remember was wasn't Reggie the first player to sign for a million a year? think so. Was it Reggie? I don't think so. I remember some comment that Steinbrenner said. He said, you know, it it sucks paying a player a million dollars to play, but my big problem is not paying Reggie a million dollars. It's paying the player half as good as Reggie half the money. You know, and he said that. Uh, Nolan Ryan was the first million dollar man. Huh? Nolan Ryan. Nolan Ryan. Nolan Ryan was the first one to get a million. Yeah. Yeah. So I it, think that's it, when he went back, to the Astros in like 79. I, I, in overall scheme of things, I see some good about the, the pitch clock, but overall, I don't like it. Yeah. I've got November 19th, 1979. Nolan Ryan signed a four year, four and a half million dollar free agent contract. And that made him the highest paid player in baseball. That's when history. he went to Houston, right? Yeah, yeah, and the game's first million-dollar contract. All right, John, you like the pitch clock or not? I don't know. I, I, I Baseball can be boring, I'll admit it. I mean, especially watching it on television. You go to a game, it's it's not as dull. But when you're when it's watching it, it pitchers – but see, I, everybody has their own style, and some guys like to take take as long as they need to get ready, and I understand that. So I'm I'm on the fence on it. Mike, I, I, I'm, I'm not sure. I haven't watched enough games. I don't watch games like I used to, not even close. Uh, but and see, and, but now I'm going to jump over to what Steve was talking about because I was lucky enough one time to go to Tiger Stadium, the old one. Mm-hmm. And I loved Al Kaline. He was one of my favorite players. So to see Al Kaline at Tiger Stadium, the little, small, little intimate stadium like Wrigley Field in a way. Uh, Jim North were up. I'm trying to think of the other t- – the other uh, Tigers, they were a good team. The catcher, Norm Cash, Norm Cash, Bill Ed, Freehand, De- Denny McLean, right? Denny McLean. I mean, Bill Freehand, right? They, that was just uh, uh, incredible. And I, I completely agree. I mean, the venues mean everything to me in baseball. Yeah, the venues you know, are, the, are the hidden treasure of baseball. They are. They're so historic. They are and, you know, from another time, you know. And you, you, nowadays, everything is so commercialized and everything. You just 
And then one quick thing to talk about kicking you off the lawn, kick, kicking them off the lawns. I don't really think people younger really get it. No, they don't. They don't no. understand. I, I, we forgot Willie Horton. Willie Horton, there you go. Willie Horton and uh, uh, Mickey Lowlich, right? Lowlich, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. And, and Mickey Stanley. Mickey, Mickey Stanley is another too. one. Yeah, Mickey Stanley, yeah. yeah. And, and Norm actually, Cash. Don't forget Norm actually, Cash. We said, you actually, said, I said, said Norm, Norm Cash, Cash earlier. We said Norm Cash. I got it, Mike. Yeah. I caught you on it. And then you had Joe Coleman, yeah. the pitcher. Because that team actually almost beat the A's in 72. I think that series went the distance five games. Mike, do we need the shot clock or not? It's a pitch clock, Steve. But since you're a basketball player, we'll act like you know what you're talking about. Shot clock. I I would say this. I don't like it because it takes away some strategy, some gamesmanship. But overall, watching a game, I can take two and a half hours to watch a game. I really don't want to take four hours. And the other thing is not how slow the players went. It's how many extra commercials are packed into everything now, which spreads it out also. true. Because there was no pitch clock in 1975, and games were usually no longer than two and a half hours long, even the games then the World Series. I mean, hell, if you would have had the 1975 World Series Game 6, which ended at midnight, if that game would have been played in 2016, the game would have ended at 3 o'clock in the morning. Yeah, Because there were so many pitching changes. I think that's the greatest game I've ever seen with Carlton Fisk and all that, that nail biter with the Reds, 75. Oh, so you're going to take it over to game seven of the engines and the Cubs? Yeah, I mean, that was obviously fabulous personally, but the best baseball game that I, I think I ever saw was that dramatic was the, the that one. The, the Cubs game was just a relief, like, oh, my God, finally. So. Yeah, <laughs> I'm hoping to have that experience with the Bengals at some point soon. I know, but I know you. Anything else you guys want to add or talk about before we wrap it up, John? No, I'd, I'd love to do one. Uh, I don't think Steve would, would want to, but maybe he might, but he not, might not feel like uh, it's his thing. But the 1970s boxing was also an incredible time. Well, to, we will do a remember uh, when on that too. Steve can either John, be honored. John, I told Mike. I Mike. He said he's been studying. I Ooh. have been studying, and I, I told him I thought I actually enjoy reading your articles more than Mike. So he I'm does really, not because he told yeah, me before he doesn't read I've any boxing articles. Boxing because of my love for Mike and me ah. wanting to try and get the in his shadow on ah. boxing. I, I I use you as my encyclopedia and your, your eloquent writing of the sport. Okay. Name and, one article John's written. Huh? Name an article John's <laughs> written that you've read. Did you read John's article yesterday? No. What was John's article on, yesterday? Joe Lewis, Max Reilly rematch. season's over. I've been on the website. You liked it. You liked it, Steve. On Facebook, you can go see Steve Risley liked it. I really? liked everything. I do that for the better of the website. Okay. Quick kiss at John's ass, Steve. Do you have anything to close with? <laughs> uh, no, I, this was a great trip through memory lane. There was. I'm sorry, we did not get to talk about the players because. The 70s was chock full of individual characters. We're going to do a remember when on our top 10 favorite players from the 70s here in a few weeks. Yeah, yeah, because I I think the players. Because we get into players, then this is going to stretch into an hour and a half. Yeah, no, 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 I I get it. But but we have to talk about, we talk about the great dynasty teams and, and everything. But I think those teams were made up of, some of the most unique characters and players 
in the sport of. Well, I think the managers of that time too. I mean, Dick Williams, Billy Martin, Sparky Anderson, all of them were characters, basically. (laughs) And I was going to make a comment. Ron Luciano, the the umpire, remember him? Sparky Anderson, your guy, your team, your manager. He was. I to to go into it, and and I'll I'll close with, with this. I can go back like we did and name a lot of players from all the great teams of the 70s. Can't name anybody now. Now I cannot <laughs> name five Three. guys. The Dodgers. And that's the team I root for. You know, I can I, name I all the Reds like, now. After the there's last a week. couple Smiths I know. There's a guy named Outman. Uh, there's a Freddie Freeman. Freeman? There's a, a Butts. Like a Mookie Butts. Betts. Bets, bets, okay. See, and, and other than that, there, there's a picture. Yeah. I mean, in 1976, I could have sat there and rattled you off every starting lineup for every team right. in baseball. We, we all could do that. We all could name them. We can't do that now. Can't so do that's, that now. that's where the game's lost. It's romanticism. Very revealing. Character. All right, but guys. Yeah. Go ahead. I was just saying, Mike, really fast, too. If you guys did this, I don't know if you guys were nerdy nerds like me, but Mike was too young. I think they still had it in the 80s, but – the 70s, every Sunday paper, they used to have the, all the statistics, all the baseball and the statistics, scores. and lists of every batting average of everybody, yeah. starting from the top to the bottom. And the same yes. I would go through that with I a did too. I did, too. I remember it. You know, it would be flipping There's baseball cards and everything else. Yeah, you couldn't pull them off the internet the- or anything like that. You just you waited for Sunday. I mean, the last time I looked at a newspaper, which was a few years ago, they don't even hardly put the box scores in except for yeah, the box scores now. were first first thing immediately go right to the box. You know, my favorite was the sporting news because they would also have all the minor league statistics. They had everything. And I'd go in and look stats. for all the they Reds. That, yeah. I, they were the Indianapolis Indians at the time that. was their AAA. But yeah. all right, guys, we will be back probably shortly because it looks like Steve had fun. Hopefully, John had fun. I had fun. Make sure you follow us at Ruling Truth. Make sure you like, subscribe to us on YouTube. Click the bell notification so you know every time we're on. And I don't know how many times Steve's been told not to interrupt me when I was doing the freaking ending. But what, Steve? Next show, can we do one on a historic review of the Indy 500? No, but we can do the 1970s boxing. (laughs) Okay. Are you ready? Hey, this is the thing. Hey, Steve. Steve. I could do it if we're going to go Indy 500s in the 70s and 80s. Well, yeah, I just said yeah, Mario Andretti. Too, yeah. when, did he win the, when did he win it in uh, Indy 500, Mario Andretti? Andretti, 1960, 60, I think it might have been 69. Nine. The, the guy is listed as a hero in Indianapolis. He only won one 500, and he used his backup car to win it because he wrecked his primary car like a week before the race. A win is a win. A win is a win, but that's his only win. <laughs> All right, guys, and also keep an eye out for our Cincinnati Reds show that myself and Joe Spillman are going to do because he knows the Reds players' names, as do I now, so we're going to get that going, and hopefully that'll end up in the World Series. John Respani, check out his books on Amazon. I almost said A Few Good Men. Blood on My (laughs) Notebook, A Few More Rounds, and Intimate Warfare, great pictures by Ed Mulholland. You wrote that with Dennis Taylor. Make sure you check out all John's books. Check him out on Max Boxing. He's the managing like editor of Max Boxing. Like Steve does, right? Yeah, and Steve, <laughs> as he Steve can't even read, <laughs> I don't think. And he's I, sincerely, read, I read the articles on Grueling Truth. Sincerely, you can, thank you. You can check Steve out at srizzly34. Also, you can go to his house 
He'll let you come in. You can sit on the couch and watch the Housewives of Beverly Hills with him or the Kardashians anytime you want. Watch Kardashians last night. There you go. All right, so we're going to get off here since Steve just embarrassed us by saying that. <laughs> but all right, guys, <laughs> we're going to wrap it up. So for John Raspani, Steve Risley, I'm Mike Goodpastor. You've been watching and listening to The Grueling Truth, where the legends speak.